Welcome to the Global Digital Banker Podcast. My name is Adele Grissoff and this is RFI Group's data-backed podcast focused on key trends, thought leadership and best practice within the fast-growing and dynamic world of digital banking. In this week's episode, I feature an interview from Finnovate Europe, where I was joined by Jim Maroos, one of the most influential people in banking, a top five fintech influencer, co-publisher of the financial brand and owner and publisher of the Global Digital Banking Report. Jim, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Hey, it's great to be here. It's good to meet in London. Not not many better places as far as I'm concerned, so it's great. Exactly. So today we're discussing the future of banking and financial services across some of the big trends for 2019, disruption and the importance of data for the year ahead. So kicking off, let's start with the big question that everyone is wanting to know. They want to know what are the big trends for 2019? Our managing directors had touched on some of these trends in episode 50 of the podcast. I want to know what your perspective is and what are the major trends you're predicting for the year ahead? Well, actually, it's not me predicting this as much as the banking industry. So what we do at the Digital Banking Report every year is we go out and ask 100 influencers, banking influencers, what do you think are going to be the major trends for the coming year? What's interesting is they come back with about 10, maybe 11 trends. We then take those and ask the banking industry globally, okay, so can you prioritize them? Can you tell us what your strategic planning items are? Can you tell us where you're going to invest? Can you tell us who you're most afraid of going forward? And things of these kind of natures. And so we published this report, and the report this year was interesting because there was movement. Movement in the fact that, number one, for the first time in four years, customer experience was not number one. That's interesting, isn't it? That's yeah. always been such a focus. It's sometimes more talk than action. Well, this year, the reality came to roost that, for the first time ever, data and advanced analytics moved to the top. Now... I will argue that all of the trends, all 10 of the trends, were ones that really had a foundation on data and analytics. So in other words, if you do not have a good sense of your customer base, if you do not have a good sense of the real-time changes that are going through their lives and be able to act on those, you can't fulfill any of the other trends. You can't give a good customer experience. You can't improve in your payment processing. You really can't partner with a fintech because you aren't going to know where the gaps are. You're not going to be able to work on multi-channel distribution because you're not going to know what channels these people use. The challenges every year, when we have them look back and say, what became the trend that really happened? Data analytics tends to fall. Why? Number one, and most importantly, there's a lack of talent. Right now, to move forward with data analytics takes new thinking, new technology, new, new education, and new learnings and skill sets that aren't traditionally in the banking system. To add to that is the problem that the universities that teach this and, and give you your constant flow of new, new people possibility is those schools have been gutted in that a lot of the professors that used to teach these courses now can make three, maybe four times more in their first year being on the private industry. So we have a, we're having a real problem here, which makes it so there's more partnership taking place. As I mentioned, secondly the customer experience is number two. Number three was, and this was interesting, is that the whole positioning of APIs and open banking moved up. It moved up despite the fact that in the U.S. there's really no regulations around APIs and open banking, but that doesn't mean the banks aren't doing it. So this is an example where 
I see even more movement taking place, probably more action, more realization and implementation, which again, where we have a challenge on data and advanced analytics is that we talk a good game, we don't implement it very well. I don't think there's any bank in the United States that can't tell me everything about me if they have my account. The problem is they don't tell me, the customer, that they know me. They don't do actions that say, I know you, I understand you, I'll look out for you. So I talk about the fact that I've had an account with Wells Fargo for 15 years. And I'm sorry, but as good as Wells Fargo is, I kind of feel like we've had 15 one-year relationships. They know where I write checks to. They know my mortgages. They know where my credit cards are. They know when I open a new account, when I close an account. The challenge is they don't do anything about it. And you're not looking out for me until you start telling me what's on the road ahead as opposed to just tell me what's in my rearview mirror, what's already happened. This kind of comes around as well, the importance of personalization and utilizing data properly. I think consumers are more aware of the data that banks have, the value of their data and how that should be implemented from an experiential point of view. So it really is up to the banks and other financial services institutions to start implementing it as consumer expectations heighten. And that's not a soft value. So what's interesting is a lot of times they think customer experience is not really a return and, and people say, yes, I want to use the data analytics to be able to sell more. That's a bad focus because the consumer says, if you know me, I'll buy more. I don't want you to sell more. So again, using Wells Fargo is a good example in this case. Because of the situation that happened a couple years ago regarding the selling of accounts that weren't real and selling things that people didn't know they got, the focus on selling for all purposes, it blew up. In the context of that, they rethought their marketing. And basically, if you go to their website now or if you open an account, your communication with them is going to be about questions about what you want in banking. What are your goals? What are your objectives? And then they'll build communications, dialogue with you that are going to be focused on your personal needs, your contextuality of what you want to do. So really it's changing push marketing to pull marketing. But more importantly, when you're looking at personalization, I give an example that about five months ago, I was in front, speaking in front of about 500 community bankers. And in context of something I was talking about, I said, how many of you have Amazon Prime? They all raised their hand, every single one of them. I then said, um, I said, how many of you, when Amazon raised the price by 20%, basically thought about canceling your Amazon Prime account and not getting it? Two people in 500 raised their hands. And I said, what that tells you, no longer, many of you probably signed up for Amazon Prime and you got free shipping. Well, now almost every retailer, certainly during the holidays, will give you free shipping or you can negotiate it. So that's no longer a differentiator. The reason why you stay engaged is they continually show you that they know you and they'll make recommendations either in the retail products or other places that are very applicable to you. Now, they're not going to make recommendations going, if you purchase this, then you want this. But what they'll do is when you're looking for something, they will position their products based on how you've bought in the past. So if you tend to like red, as I tend to, I will get red things a lot of times. Or if I buy the high market things so I don't have to worry about returns and getting that good quality, I notice that I'm not getting the cheapest things. I'm getting things that are more priced a little bit higher in the marketplace. This happens because they know me. And what happens is I'm more likely to 
quickly be satisfied without even knowing it. Google is another great example. When you do a Google search three years ago, you may have had to go three pages before you found what you're looking for. But every time you do a search, Google learns what you look at, what areas you're looking at, what avenues you're going down, how to personalize this experience with you. It is very infrequently now when you do a search. They have to go past the first page. Maybe not, once you get past the ads, the first one or two entries. Why? Because they say, when you ask for X, I kind of know what you mean by that. It's not what everybody else means. What's interesting about that is that's behind the scenes. It's having data work behind the scenes to make your life easier, to make the experience more seamless, and to basically personalize. Now, what, what also Amazon Prime shows you is if you do that well, you can charge for it. What a novel concept for the banking industry that continues to give everything away for free is that if you do your data and analytics well, consumers will pay not only to give you information about them, but they'll also pay for the value proposition if you come to them with the right package of services to make their life better. Now, this becomes extraordinarily important when privacy comes into play. Yes. Because privacy basically is there to say, if you misuse my data or don't use my data, I'm going to take those rights away. If you use them correctly, they'll never unwind that relationship. In fact, they'll probably say, why is my other institution doing for me what the other institution is? And they'll close their accounts over time. Yeah, once you do have that experience, all sent for yeah. everyone else, isn't it? Right. Well, that's such an interesting topic. So more on the, the data analytics, obviously becoming more and more important on almost that personalization is leaning towards becoming a hygiene factor almost mm -hmm. as, as these institutions continue to roll that out. Where do you see that growing in the next 12 months? Unfortunately, I have bad news. The banking industry is very aware of what they have to do to compete better, what they have to do to serve their customers better, what they have to do to be, become a digital bank. Unfortunately, the difference between what they know and what they do are vastly different. And the consumer world would be like saying 40-some percent of the people say they'd open a new checking account with Amazon. The challenge is they aren't going to do it. Nowhere near that number. Because latency, change of decisions, the, the whole thing of switching, all that is really cumbersome. In the banking world, you may want to do these things, but the challenge is, number one, you don't have the talent pool. Most importantly, you don't have the culture. Because you need a culture that says, I'm going to invest in technology, analytics, personnel, partnerships to be able to raise the bar and make my organization different based on how I build real relationships with consumers. As I mentioned, when we ask organizations, you know, we ask them questions like, how do you make the best customer experience? The first answer was being able to solve a person's problem quickly and efficiently. Well, that's noble. That's great. The problem is, in the same room of 500 bankers, I asked how many of you have had a major problem with your account in the last year? About 1% of them raised their hands, maybe two. So if you're making the primary definition of good customer experience and good customer service something that 98% of your customers don't care about, or they may care about, but only if it's them, mm. we're focusing on the wrong things. We're focused on not realizing that the digital experience, the engaging, easy to use, definition of experience has changed from a smiley teller to an easy to use app. As you said at the beginning, the consumer's getting smarter and smarter. With the consumer getting smarter, someday they will wake up, and unfortunately a lot of banks will not wake up to the realization that 
you're no longer relevant. Now, it's already happening when we look at digital transformation. In most countries, digital transformation, for the most part, has been really centered around the bigger organizations. There's a reason for that. It takes money to invest. Unfortunately, small organizations will say, customers just aren't clamoring for that. Well, two things are happening. Number one, it's either invisible and you don't know it, and I'll explain that in a second, or you're not getting any customers that do care about it. So the millennial generation wants to buy local. They want to be able to come back to the roots and really help the organizations that are smaller, mom and pop, the smaller banks, whatever. The challenge is when they come to the decision point and they have a choice between a small community bank or a small credit union, small savings association, and the big bank that has really good digital apps, they're going to pick the big bank because when it comes to the end of the day, they want things to be easy. And we're starting to see that new accounts are almost all going to the biggest banks. Now, there's no doubt that the um, neobanks in the UK are making some great inroads, but scale is still way in favor of the big banks. And the challenge is, how do you get name recognition beyond certain micro segments? So in most of the bigger neobanks, it's really the millennials that are really digital active and love to test new things. We're seeing in some of our research that consumers and millennials in particular are more open to using these digital only providers, but at the same time, it's still not enough to necessarily switch main financial institution right. to them. So they might dabble with some payments. That's or... exactly what's going to happen. And you know, adding to that, the digital only banks, the challengers, they get investments based on number of customers they have not based on engagement, level of engagement. So counting somebody as a customer and counting somebody as the person who's having their, their paycheck directly deposited to that bank mm. are vastly different. Yeah. Now, there's, there's a number of reasons for that. Number one, risk. They're, they're concerned, okay, is this going to be here? Because you have had some shutdowns of challenger banks for a week and you can't get your money out of the ATM. You go, thank goodness I have my Barclays account, my Lloyd's yeah. account. So I haven't committed fully. So you, you put your toe in the water. You can say you have one of those accounts. You can show people your great card. At the end of the day, you go, yeah, but right behind that really neat card is this rather bland account that does everything I need it to do. So what happens is it gets back to the utilization of data. It gets back to the trends. It gets back to what's going to happen overall with consumers. And what's going to happen with banks is, and what we're seeing with banks is, while they talk about data analytics, for the most part, most AI initiatives are still in the security and risk area, privacy area. Which they've always been. By the way, AI is not new. It's been in the risk area forever. And this is how you get protected. The bank will call you and say, there's transactions that are out of the norm for you. So why can't financial institutions use the same logic the other way around and say, oh, your deposits or your withdrawals have changed a bit. And take notes and say, should I be warning her, you may be going overdraft or you may have an opportunity to invest that you would have found on your own. And I talk about the fact that Consumers no longer want the rear view, mirror view of their financial. They don't want to be told what's already happened. Yeah. They kind of know that. I mean, because you're getting moment-by-moment moment transactions on your phone many times. What they want to know is, what's going to happen down the road? If you're going to buy a really nice dress or a TV, wouldn't it be nice if your bank said, you know, you got rent coming up or mortgage coming up in another two weeks. You have a paycheck coming up, but it's right after that. You may want to just put this on layaway or wait for a little while because you're going to be in a tight position here. Or, better than that, I'll tell you what, how about if we give you a bridge loan, which makes it so you can make it to that point, 
you can pay it back immediately. This would give you access to a small personal loan that you can pay back anytime you want. I'm like, you've now solved my personal dilemma. How do I Before buy what I want? Happens. Exactly. And you, and you come back with a solution that's immediate. Yeah. So it's not, oh, if you put in an application, we'll give you the loan. No, it's, it's looking at your phone. They say, you may want to take out an immediate loan. Just push this button. We'll get back to you in 15 seconds with an answer. Why? Because they're always doing credit bureaus on you. Which is why mortgage companies and loan companies are the most progressive, and payment companies are the most progressive in the fintech space, because they found ways to use data and analytics and customer experience to their advantage in saying, we can make the best digital experience using the data we have and knowing what triggers a purchase. So it's, it's kind of exciting. It is. So unfortunately, we may not see big um, inroads, but we're starting to see organizations make major decisions based on these anomalies, based on tech, based on ability to do major analytic role. And so just this last week, we had two major community banks, $200 million each, that merged. And what was interesting about this merger, or they've announced a merger, I'm not sure if it's going to be approved. Mm -hmm. What was unique about this merger is it was never on anybody's watch list because most mergers involve the expansion of market. What this did was a contraction of market. The overlap was almost 70% because they were in the same markets. But what it was, if you overlap by about 70%, you can close a lot of branches. Yeah, massive. And that's a major concern for most banks is that either they don't want to close branches because they think they're the most important thing, or the government's going to regulate you away from closing the ones you want to close. But if you have them overlapping, you can make a case very easy to say, these branches are right across the street from each other. So all of a sudden, they have amazingly cutting of costs immediately. Now, what's also interesting about that merger, unlike most mergers that you pick the dominant player and you move to their headquarter city, they picked a third city as being the headquarters. What was interesting about that is they picked Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, mind you, it's the home of Bank of America. But more importantly, it's a very up-and-coming tech talent hub. It and Austin, Texas are the two most aggressive tech talent hubs right now to get young talent that can do the numbers, can run analytics, can do coding in their sleep. So what you're seeing is organizations making decisions on where's the talent going to be. It also helps because if you move to headquarters and you consolidate them and say, well, you can move to a third city, you have people that have been with the bank for a long time, they're less likely to leave. Well, they're also the ones that are going to, I'm sorry, but in many cases, hold down the organization from moving forward. So you almost force culture in saying, we're going to move to a third city, we're going to lose people, we're going to cut costs, we're going to change our dynamics, at least our optics, to be able to move forward from a digital transformation journey and also saving money to be able to apply it towards technology. And they came right out and said, we're doing this because as small, again, $200 million organizations, small organizations that were in the top 20, we need to combine to become the sixth largest bank in the U.S., simply because we don't have enough scale. Wow. That's a big wake-up call. Yeah, and even just the physical relocation is almost resetting that mental, yeah. cultural perspective. Well, and that's the challenge, because both these banks are legacy South banks. It's one thing to combine organizations. It's another thing to combine have to change culture. So with this shift to digital growing, and as well, everyone's considering culture now with just strategic decision-making, how do you think this will affect concerns about human displacement? Great, great question, because it 
is overriding everything right now. So in the States, as in the UK and other places in the world, a lot of institutions are, are figuring out that the only way to build a digital bank is to actually build a digital bank, separate from the mothership, as I call it. Yeah. DBS did it with Digibank in India. You have a number of organizations that built sub-brands. The reason is, if you try to build it within the bank, you can't get out of your own way. You continue to think as a banker. You have people on the committee that are like bankers. And that works well for projects. If I'm in a room, around 25 people, we're charged with building a bank. Mm. Number one, it's going to take longer than you ever thought it would take. Because you're going to have fiefdoms. You're going to have people that say, okay, I, I'm going to agree with that because it doesn't affect me. I don't, I don't mind giving that job away because it's not my job. But when it comes to my job, I'm going to protect it. And what's going to happen is you're going to protect it with your own mindset, with your own legacy value system that isn't going to work going forward. So DigiBank was interesting because two of the people that had that, Neil Cross and Sonia Wanjahovas, two amazingly talented people, they built that in nine months. And when I asked Sonia, I said, how did you build that in nine months? She said, well, we kind of said, if you can have a baby in nine months, we're kind of birthing a new bank. Let's set that as a date. Well, what was interesting, they met it. They exceeded it. They generated over a million accounts in one year. Why? Because it was built right. Now, DBS Bank is a very progressive bank in Singapore. The challenge was not progressive enough. Now, Sonia is a legacy banker, but without legacy thought. She's right now moved to the United States and is in charge of digital and technology transformation for Chase Bank. Her transformation efforts are going to touch at least 20,000 people. Now, how do you do that without ticking off some of those people? What you're seeing now is that transformation effort, that cultural change, that, that having to retrain is a very big part. And I've, I've been going around the world now and, and for about nine months now talking about the need to embrace change, take risks, and disrupt yourself. And I'll, we'll talk about that maybe a little later. But the whole concept is the world is changing so fast. It's hard to keep up. But if you hang on to the past, which, by the way, has served you well in the, in the past. So if the more successful you are, the less likely it is you're going to want to change. Why? Everything's going well. Well, in the banking industry, they're all making money. They're making as much or more money than they made back in the crisis and haven't stopped making money. The problem is most of that has been through cost-cutting, through scaling back, through not really moving forward and building better organizations as much as leaner organizations. Well, you kind of get to the point where you go, there's not a whole lot more to cut. So how do we do that? Well, you also have to look and say, okay, so this unit over here is building a digital bank. They keep on talking about this is the future. And I'm running a, a, a traditional accounting department. Mm -hmm. I'm going, hmm. Can I see this handwriting on the wall? Now, in my mind, I'm saying, I didn't want to try to write this out and wait till it happens to me. Not a really good choice unless you're one or two years from retirement. Or you're going to say, you know what? I'm going to find out what they're doing. So what you have to do is self-educate because the organizations, for the most part, don't even know what they don't know yet. So you almost have to take the initiative on yourself saying, I'm going to disrupt myself before it happens to me. I'm going to jump overboard before they push me. But I'm going to learn how to swim in the meantime. I'm not going to have it happen to me with not being ready for the future. And that's the predicament we're in because right now, the banking industry is changing faster than it ever had before. But on the other hand, it's never going to change as slowly again. I had a boss once that said, you either got to decide if you're going to be on the train or off the train. Well, that was back when the train came to the station, stopped, 
You decide if you want to get on or not. You let it go. Maybe pick up the next one. Now they're bullet trains. Number one, they're not stopping at stations. You've got to run, catch up, and grab on. You then have to move through the cars and try to progress through the maze of figuring out how to do it. And then you get to the engineer seat, and you've got to know how to drive it. Because in a leaner organization, you're going to have a whole lot less people that know how to run the organization. The thought is, are you going to be part of where the future is? Most successful organizations are those organizations, in many cases, that are not run by legacy bankers. I always give BBVA as an example. They're a great organization that's done more digital transformation from becoming an older bank to a very new bank. But they've done it because they've been run by an engineer, by a technology person back for years. The, the CEO has not been a banker. Well, that makes life easier. And where is a lot of transformation happening, digitalization? is happening in countries like Turkey, Poland, Russia, China, places that have relatively new financial systems. As a result, they're not all the legacy regulations that were built for legacy banks. I was just kidding with the head of Finnovate. And I said, you know, one thing you have to remember is we wait for the regulators to change things, but the way you become a regulator is how long you've been in the banking industry. So we take our oldest, most stable, most conservative regulators or bankers, we say, we're going to make you a regulator. Now you have to regulate change. This isn't in their blood. It's not their DNA. So we have a big challenge, which is also the anchor that holds us, which is why digital banks, challenger banks, new organizations have a chance. On one hand, they have to fight regulations that aren't going to move very fast. On the other hand, their competition are these legacy banks that sometimes they get it, but they don't do it. And as you said at the very beginning, the consumer's expectations are now so much greater. You know, you don't want to go to a store that doesn't have Apple Pay or the ability to pay digitally. Why? Because it's easier. Mm. And Barclays has a thing where you can go into a convenient food store, pick up all your food, and just walk out. They track you. They know what you bought. You don't have to even go to the register. That's the longest part of the purchase process. And, oh, by the way, you may change your account if you're around that area because you go, I like the simplicity. Mm. And that's why QR codes in, in, in China and in Hong Kong, in Singapore, become so important because for transit, they're more mobile-based than most payment systems. Why? Because they've learned how to make it as seamless and as easy as possible without having to do all the pushing of authentication buttons. They also realize you don't have to authorize every transaction. You put risk into turn and say, if you've been an account with us for 30 years and you keep on taking the same train, it's probably you. With this moving forward, what are the biggest opportunities for the smaller institutions Smaller organizations have to be aware and be happy that they have a good customer service rating with, it, with their customers. But that strength can also be their weakness. If you fall back and go, but our customers love us, have you paid attention to see if you have as many customers as you used to? Consumers no longer rate a smiling teller as being the key point of satisfaction. What they do rate is how well does their digital platform work? Does it go down? Is it accessible? Is it easy? Convenience is no longer viewed as how close is my branch. It's viewed as how well does the app work to get me where I want to go? How many steps do I have to do to get there? And what's interesting about that, those are the competitive advantages that we've grown up on. So if now I'm using my digital bank all the time and I only go to my branch if I have an issue, so I don't think you're going to see complete closure of branches. They still are and will be for a long time in most cultures in most countries. A security blanket. The challenge is how many do you need and how do people really rate 
how satisfied they are with the bank. I get frustrated with little things. I'm a small business owner. The fact that my business bank, where I have a fairly good amount of money, and I've had the account for five years, only gives me a limit of $5,000 on mobile deposit capture. I went in and said, guys, can you up my, my balance? Because at, at Wells Fargo, on my personal account, they give me $75,000 a month, which I can't understand that one on the other hand. I go, can you raise it to $5,000? And they go, no, we really can't. I said, well, why not? They go, everybody has $5,000. And at which point I put my hands to my head and go, Poosh! because my mind is blown by the fact that I go, do you hear what you're saying? You're well, saying that every consumer is going to be the same and that you'll give everybody the same limit. Now, why aren't you doing credit bureaus on me and credit reports on me the same way you do on my credit side? Do you give everybody a $2,000 car loan? No. You base on the value of the car, how long you've had a relationship. This is impacting me as a small business. In the same sense, I went and opened up a second account with the same bank, and they said, well, I need this certain form to show that I'm a, a corporation or something like this. I said, where do you get it? And they, gave, they wrote down the URL. I said, oh, okay. So they said, print it up, sign it, and bring it in. I said, okay, can you, you know, you just gave it to me. Can you, can you run it here? I'll just do it while I'm here. They go, no, we don't have access to the outside environment to be able to do that. We're not allowed access with our bank computers to the outside. Now, I understood that logic. I said, wait, so this happens with every small business account. Why wouldn't you somehow take this PDF, which is a government PDF, which means there's no, there's no major laws against copying it, make it part of your system. And don't have it print off, because a PDF is not going digital. And worse, you have to fill in every blank. If a good bank does this, they have it all pre-filled, except for maybe one or two lines that are something you didn't know from previous, and my signature. You know, I, I kid about the fact that banks say consumers don't want to open their account digitally. And I said, let me go through the transactions. I'm a legacy banker. I remember being a teller, being a manager. I can tell you how this happens, because I used to game the system as well. What happens is a person starts the whole process digitally because that's where they want to open the account. You push them there. You want them to start there, and they do. They then get to the end, and they, you either tell them they've got to come in to make their deposit in the branch. They have to do know your customer regulations in the branch, or they've got to make a signature. Something that is minor that doesn't have to be done that way by regulation. It's just that you don't have the system to do it. Now, when I come to the branch and say, I've already started the account digitally. I'd like to open my account. They say, Mr. Moose, please sit down at the desk here. We'll get this thing care of for you. And by the way, I want to make sure that everything is filled out correctly. So I'm going to go through some of the same questions and um, we'll go through the answer. What they're basically doing is opening the account start to finish on their branch computer. Most banks don't do a really good job monitoring how the customer journey goes. They do last touch attribution. So guess where that customer's account looks like it was opened? In the branch. And it never showed that you went through 90% of the process digitally, so the bank continues to get told, look at, we had 90% of the people open the account of the branch. That's only because 10% of the people had a branch manager that didn't care that they put it as a digital open. They weren't worried about their job. My wife was in retail. She was in store retail, and she realized that store retail was continually fighting against online retail, saying, you're stealing my customers. Now, she disrupted herself. She moved to the digital side of retail and realized, guess what? They can work in the same world, but they have different purposes, different ways of transacting, and you can't do the digital transaction like you would have done the branch transaction. You can have a whole lot bigger product line. I talk about in retail that in Cleveland, where I'm from, we had two of the biggest malls in the country for a number of years. In fact, at one point, the biggest mall in the country back in this, 
I think early 70s. Big footprint, 70 to 120 stores. It was very big. Right now, that mall's been torn down, and that exact same footprint, both locations in Cleveland, are now Amazon distribution warehouses, which, when you think about it, how amazing is that as a, as a notice to people saying, that's digital transformation. Mm. You now have, you took a, a walk-in mall that has 70 to 100 stores. You now have a distribution warehouse that holds 700,000 stores worth of product, and they bring it to your house as opposed to you having to go there. That is the reality, yeah. is that retail has transformed so much in the same footprint, by the way, because those stores, if you put it end-to-end, Back in the 70s, would have taken up the whole city, you know, <laughs> and you don't have that anymore. So you have to be re- realizing, are you going to jump on the train? Are you really going to disrupt yourself? Are you going to embrace the change? And then the biggest part is, are you truly going to self-educate before the train gets to you? Because you may be the last to find out. And so you have to look around you and say, not just as a person, but as an organization, say, you know, what's creating and stir right now? Because as I said, you know, the one challenge is, okay, as an Amazon pay member, I pay $120. What if they said, I'll waive your fee every year that you hold a checking account, a primary checking account with a direct deposit and open a savings account as well? Well, a whole lot of customers would take advantage of that. And the big problem is banking industry can't offset that because they don't have a, a business model that includes retail, that includes collecting fees, that includes transferring revenues from different places. They don't have a big data warehouse or banks actually pay you to use your data warehouse. So what ends up happening, if they wanted to pull the trigger or make a partnership to pull the trigger, how would we be able to compete? Are we giving enough value to the customer that they'll say, I understand Amazon's going to do that and they want to give me this money, but I actually believe that the value I get from my current bank is greater than $120 or whatever that amount may be. Yeah, proactivity is key. Disrupting yourselves before it happens also key. Jim, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to catch up with you on the show. For those interested in discovering more content from Jim and The Financial Brand, head to thefinancialbrand.com. To discover more consumer insights around the future of digital banking, check out episode 50, where our managing directors share both an East and Western perspective on the topic. And for updates on upcoming episodes, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at GDB Podcast or on LinkedIn under RFI Group.